0: Until last year, famous actresses' breasts are unlikely to have inspired much beyond the already fervid libidos of teenage boys. And, let's be honest, their fathers. But then Angelina Jolie wrote an editorial in the New York Times that unlocked debate and discussion on a matter of public health of global importance. In that editorial, Ms Jolie talked about her decision to have a double mastectomy, that is, to have both breasts removed, after testing positive for a mutation in a cancer risk gene. A whole host of issues which patients have been dealing with in private over the last 15 years or so since genetic testing for breast cancer risk arrived were now being pored over by columnists and commentators the world over. Chief among these was people's or patients' understanding of risk. The decision to have a double mastectomy is, you don't need me to tell you, a drastic one. But the information on which that decision is based is less definitive. There's no gene a person can inherit that means that they will definitely get cancer. And then there's the fact that although a double mastectomy is the most effective way to reduce the risk of breast cancer, increasingly there are other options. In the UK, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, that's nice, recently published draft guidelines recommending that women with a high genetic risk of breast cancer should be offered preventative drug treatment. I'm at an event in London which aims in some small way to help people map out this minefield. It's the first in a series of four events, that go under the heading Breast Cancer Chances, Choices and Genetics organised by the Progress Educational Trust and supported by the Wellcome Trust So over the next 20 minutes or so I'll be chatting with each of the five speakers that's three medical experts, one policy expert and one of the first people in the UK to decide to have a double mastectomy after an assessment of genetic risk But first, I'm pleased to speak with Diana Eccles, who's Professor of Cancer Genetics at the University of Southampton, who set up one of the first NHS-funded cancer genetic services in the UK. Uh, Diana, thanks for joining me. Um, I'd like to start by just clarifying some of the basics, if I could. First of all, when people talk about cancer risk genes, what are they really talking about?
1: So the two most frequently identified genes that have become altered and therefore increased the risk of breast cancer are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes and that just stands for breast cancer 1 and breast cancer 2 because they were the first two genes to be identified in families with a strong history of breast cancer. Um, they're also associated those two genes with a higher risk of ovarian cancer so there is a link between the two in that context.
0: Okay so we're mostly talking about the famous BRCA genes uh, and Angelina Jolie carried a mutation in the BRCA1 gene. Um, now, I know that breast cancer can't at all solely be attributed to those genes or, or even, in fact, to a person's genetics more generally. In what sort of proportion of women that you would see uh, in the clinic does family background and so the genes that they inherit play a part?
1: So, in a breast cancer clinic, Ooh. probably about 20% will have some sort of familial component. Um, But the majority of those won't be BRCA genes. If we take all breast cancer across the board, much of which occurs at older ages, um, and typically in the screening age between 47 and 70, if we take all of those breast cancers, then probably about 3% of those are due to BRCA gene mutations. So really a very small proportion. Mm. But if we take much younger patients, particularly patients who develop very specific subtypes of breast cancer we are more likely to find a BRCA gene even in the absence of a family history
0: and and just to go over a bit of the terminology that that crops up um, could you explain to me a bit about the divide that's made between sporadic versus hereditary breast cancer uh, what are we talking about there
1: most people who develop cancer don't develop it because they've inherited a single high-risk gene So the BRCA genes are usually, when they're altered and causing a high risk, they are inherited from one or other parent. It could be from the mother, it could be from the father. Lots of people with a family history have probably got multiple minor variations in genes that are common in the population but that happen to cluster in that family and so they together increase the risk and they tend to interact quite strongly with environmental factors. When we talk about sporadic or hereditary, it's really describing the family history. So it's not really telling us everything about the possible genes that have gone wrong. So sporadic cases tend to be the term that people use to describe somebody who's developed a cancer where there's no family history and no suggestion of genetic cause. That sometimes, although not frequently, can be due to a BRCA gene and the family history may have been obscured because the person is adopted or it's come through their father's side of the family and there are no female relatives to um, have experienced cancer if the gene was there. Um, hereditary cancers tend to be the description we start with when we're looking at a very very strong history of cancer running down one side of the family and then we also use the term familial breast cancer where we're just describing a cluster of breast cancers in the family but where it doesn't have the um, relentless young onset of breast and ovarian cancer that we typically see with um, BRCA gene mutations.
0: Okay um, I, I was talking a bit in my intro about about genetics and breast cancer risk being being something of a minefield for for, for patients to, to negotiate um, and I'm, I'm sure it must feel like that when people get 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 their results back um, and then of course that they, they may have these drastic decisions to make. Um, do you have any words on how patients do negotiate all that?
1: So once we've identified a high-risk gene, so let's say a BRCA gene running in the family, each individual's choice about what they do about that BRCA gene will depend very, very much on their individual circumstances. So there are a range of options, and people make choices not only informed by the risk that we quote of the probability of developing cancer but but very much by their own experience of cancer in the past so one of the very very potent drivers for women deciding for example to have bilateral mastectomy is where their mother has perhaps died from cancer when they are relatively young and where they themselves have young children and want to prevent the same thing happening again
0: I'm now joined by Gareth Evans, who is Professor of Medical Genetics and Cancer Epidemiology at the University of Manchester. Um, Gareth, uh, I believe your talk this evening will focus on how medical professionals convey risk um, and how easy it is for that risk to be misconstrued. Um, And the title of tonight's event, I think, Relative Risk, is a prime example. Relative Risk is relatively
2: about the poorest understood of any way you can you can actually talk about risk. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an example, often carriers of mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2, the two highest risk breast cancer genes, it's said they have a 10 to 15-fold relative risk. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, if you consider that the average woman is said to have a 1 in 8 or 1 in 10 risk, Mm -hmm. 10 times that is inevitable. So you really can't actually work it out from the published relative risk. Right, and I believe a lot of your own work tries to find a better way of doing things. Can you tell me about that? So we, what I did when I, in 1990 when I first started doing this was say, well, look, I've got to understand how to convey risk and how it's perceived. So a lot of work I did in the first few years was literally around that risk perception. Mm-hmm. And what that discovered was really that actually what women understand is odds ratios. So one in however many, one in ten, one in eight. Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually percentages are are really not very well understood either. So it's a a way of actually conveying that risk. And do you talk about the risk in their lifetime? Mm -hmm. So that's a risk to say 80 years of age. Mm -hmm. Or do you talk about risk in a given time period, Mm -hmm. which is sort of 10, 20 years. Mm. Now, the difficulty there is is that if you're a 60 year old woman and you hear you've got a lifetime risk of one in eight, or mm. well, well actually it's not a lifetime risk of one in eight because you've already lived through half of that risk. Mm. So it's about all of those nuances and balancing mm. it together. And then having come up with a risk mm. for an individualized risk for a woman which may determine what screening or preventive measures they get access to, mm you then got to talk about how other factors influence that risk so how does the fact that they had their children at a young or a late age or didn't have children influence it and that Mm. can have a a pretty big effect Mm.
0: okay I'd like to move on to the Angelina Jolie effect if I may whether you think that's been globally negative or positive um, whether there's been an enhanced perception of genetic cancer risk unnecessarily so or, or whether the fact of having more people through the door for screening has been an overriding positive?
2: I think by and large it's been positive that, mm. that actually the majority of women coming forward have come forward appropriately rather than being scared. Mm. It's possible that a lot of women who were scared unnecessarily were reassured by their GPs and and didn't get as far as specialist services. Mm. Uh, but certainly I think it's, it's a good thing. I think what we've seen is a lot of people who maybe have been hel- holding back mm-hmm. and suddenly saying, well, actually, is it that scary? You know, Angelina Jolie's been through this whole process. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, if there was anything to debunk about, you know, for instance, risk-reducing mastectomy, mm-hmm. um, people have seen the pictures of her after her surgery. It doesn't look like she's been, mm-hmm. you know, um, attacked with a, with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not being overwhelmed with women asking for risk-reducing surgery. We're just being seeing a lot more women who want to know their risk and want to know what they can do about it. I, I, I think the risk that was bandied about mm-hmm. um, was possibly unhelpful because mm-hmm. we can't give precise risks like 87%. And it's likely that uh, what was read from the mutation report mm-hmm. from Myriad Genetics was a risk of up to 87%. Mm-hmm. So that's again how things can be misinterpreted.
0: The next person to join me is Professor Gordon Wishart, a consultant breast and endocrine surgeon in Cambridge uh, and in fact the former director of the breast unit at uh, Cambridge University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. Gordon, the uh, backdrop to this evening's event is the vast increase in knowledge of genetics that's occurred over the last 20 or 15 years or so. Um, what, What has been the impact on surgery services and on surgeons like yourself?
3: I think it's fair to say that only a very small number of women who have a strong family history of breast cancer have one of the breast cancer genes and only some of them will come through for surgery. So what we're talking about in the course of a year, it's a, a handful of patients um, who require this type of surgery. Clearly, if the referral rate increases, it will become a bigger part of our workload. But, but for most surgeons like myself, the biggest part of our workload is actual breast cancer surgery. But we also have uh, these patients. And I think, I think we're really just at the start of our understanding about breast cancer genetics and during the next few years we're going to learn an awful lot more about this particular area. Sure but I think
0: you'll be talking a bit about the current state of play in your talk this evening. Um, Can I ask for a little
3: sneak preview of that? Yeah I think I'm going to say several things. One is I think it's quite important to say that at the moment we have a very good process with cancer genetic specialists and genetics counsellors Uh, to select the women who are appropriate to have genetic testing and then to refer them on for surgery. So we have a process that works. It takes quite a long time to go through that process. I think that's a good thing. The reason I think the process works is that I can't remember a single patient who's arrived in my clinic to discuss surgery who's then changed their mind. So we have a very good selection process. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit about the term that we now use, which is risk-reducing mistake to me. We used to call it prophylactic mistake to me, which is a term that's even harder to understand. Risk-reducing mistake to me is much more descriptive, and it forces us to explain to each woman what the risk reduction is, which is about 95 to 98 percent, because that's the amount of breast tissue. That a mastectomy will remove therefore the risk is reduced by the same amount so we're not guaranteeing that that woman will never get breast cancer but it's a substantial risk reduction uh, and then just a, a warning sign that if it, if risk reducing mastectomy becomes an increasing part of our workload mm. there's going to become a conflict for breast surgeons between trying to fit these cases in with an increasing number of women diagnosed with breast cancer and having surgery for breast cancer Mm. and i think i suspect most of the specialists will say the same thing this evening that Mm. that this increase throughput and requirement uh, for surgery doesn't come with any resource Mm. increase and have you seen an upsurge in surgery referrals over the last year that that has become difficult to manage well uh, we haven't seen an upsurge in surgery yet Mm. but i think that's because the upsurge has been with the genetics teams with risk assessment and they're all going through that process just now I think we're at the point now where we're just about to see an increase in in people requiring surgery
0: I'm with Baroness Delith Morgan, uh, Chief Executive of Breast Cancer Campaign, which is a a charity which, among other things, helps fund breast cancer research projects in the UK and Ireland. Um, Delith, uh, thanks uh, very much for taking the time out to speak with me. Now, I think you started working uh, in this field in 1996 as uh, Chief Executive of uh, Breakthrough Breast Cancer. I'd imagine that a whole lot has changed since then.
4: When I started working in the breast cancer field, The second breast cancer gene had literally just been identified and there was a huge level of excitement in the scientific community um, about the possibilities that this new understanding might represent. So now, today, to be um, debating um, the kind of services and information that women need in order to make decisions um, if they are a a gene carrier, it's just almost impossible to to convey how much things have moved on and how much more important it is now that people really understand issues around risk and around the choices that they might be presented with because you know, this really is just the beginning. There are, you know, there are um, other genes other than the BRCA genes that are implicated in breast cancer and you know, the picture will become um, clearer, but also quite complicated for patients. So it's a, a, an enormous change in the time that I've been involved.
0: Mm, and, and just carrying on from things being complex for patients, I mean, I suppose that's always going to be the case when people are faced with these difficult decisions about preventative treatment. But does does the current system in the in the UK uh, for genetic testing and so on work smoothly enough?
4: I think it's very hard for patients at the moment. There isn't a. a clear, straightforward pathway to um, simple genetic um, counselling, as it were. Um, We are reliant on um, the expertise of a small number of centres and specialists um, and it's you know although Nice do issue guidelines about how services should be delivered, um, you know we're very concerned that they're not being monitored and that they're not being implemented. So I don't think that our current health service is set up to deliver care um, that is commensurate with our current levels of knowledge. And so you know we really do need to to see improvements.
0: What kind of improvements?
4: Well, I think. For the first time, the uh, NICE guidelines have recommended, for example, um, the use of um, treatments like tamoxifen as uh, a a risk-reducing treatment, so preventative treatment. And there's no uh, system in place for thinking about who might prescribe that treatment and how women might be monitored and supported for, you know, what could be many many years of taking this preventative treatment which does have real side effects and sometimes you know quite challenging side effects for some women so there are you know the, the, the system isn't geared up yet and and we think that needs to change
0: the last person to join me is Kerry Andrew who is the patient voice i suppose uh, among the speakers this evening um... Kerry thanks for uh, for joining me up here um, I believe you found out that you carry the BRCA1 mutation and, uh, well, I'll let you take it from there.
5: Yeah, sure. So um, I was 24 when I took the genetic test. That was 10 years ago and found that I was a BRCA1 carrier. And I made the decision to have a preventative double mastectomy and reconstruction at that time, which at the time I was probably one of the youngest in the country that had ever done it. And it wasn't really very well known about back then. Um, I came around from surgery and found that I, and I was told by the surgeon that they'd found precancerous cells. So that was all the confirmation that I needed really, that I'd done the right thing, but mm-hmm. it was quite a traumatic surgery mm-hmm. and quite a lengthy recovery period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not the easiest thing to go through.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Um, and this was, this was 10 years ago, so this is in the early days really for, uh, genetic testing for cancer risk and, and preventative uh, mastectomies. Um, W- when you got the test result back and you were, you were asking yourself, what do I do, w- what did you cleave to and what kind of things came, came into that decision?
5: So um, there were 12 weeks from taking the test to getting the results so I had a lot of thinking time in that space. I was seven years old when my mother died, she was 28 when she first developed breast cancer and 35 when she died and most of my childhood memories are of being in a hospital with her or being on her sick bed, ultimately her deathbed so there really wasn't much of a choice for me my mm-hmm. granny was 20 sorry my granny was 32 when she first developed breast cancer she survived my mother but died in her 50s of ovarian cancer mm. so when you're surrounded by so many deaths in the family the genes seem to be particularly violent mm. that given at that time preventative surgery was the only option
4: mm.
5: it it was very much an easy decision for me to make, although it wasn't an easy decision for those people around me to yeah. accept, actually. In what way? Um, I think other people were frightened. They, mm. um, they didn't know the aesthetics, what I would end up looking like. Mm. I was very young, so they, maybe some people thought I didn't know my own mind. Mm. Um, and I think people were just genuinely scared for me. Um, mm. Then there were the people that didn't really understand um, and would say things like that, you know, that I was vain or um, I'd mutilated myself. Um, mm. I had a different reaction from different people, but mm. it's funny when you go through something as big as that, you realise who your friends really are. Mm. So I think mm. there's just some ignorance and people just not really understanding.
0: Mm. Uh, now, I'm afraid our short interview is going to have to come to an end as uh, I think you'll be up on the stage in a, in a few minutes. Um... Uh, all being well, the podcast will also be winding down. Um, is there something maybe from, from your talk that you'd like to, to draw people's attention to, to close?
5: Um, a little talked about fact is that men are also genetic carriers of the breast and ovarian cancer gene BRCA1, BRCA2. Um, and men can be either be a carrier or they, it can manifest itself as breast cancer or as prostate cancer. My uncle is here today. He's a survivor of prostate cancer, a BRCA1 carrier himself. So I think it's important to keep the discussion open about men it's not just about women
0: and that really is an excellent point to uh, to end on Um, thank you very much Kerry and thanks to the other people who've uh, who who I've spoken to this evening Um, this podcast was uh, presented edited and produced by me James Brooks uh, for the Progress Educational Trust with the support of the Wellcome Trust